Heavenly Father, we thank you, God, that you are that you are real, that you are sovereign, that you're in control of every atom and every molecule in this universe, that nothing happens outside of your ultimate uh, sovereign plan. And God, we, we find great comfort in that as your people because we can trust you, God. We know that you have proven the way that you love and care for us by sending your son Jesus to die on the cross and for our sins in our place. You've proven once and for all your love and care for us, and so we, we know that you do care even when circumstances are challenging, when some outcomes are not fully known, when, when, when we are uh, wondering what the future holds. And so, God, we pray for Scott and Liliana and Michael that you would overwhelm them with your presence right now, that you would draw near to them in just an unusually powerful way. Uh, God, I pray that you would give Scott and Liliana just tremendous faith right now to trust your promises, that they would have a peace that transcends understanding, that would guard their hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Uh, I pray, God, for uh, the ability to cling on to you. And God, I pray for the doctors involved in this, uh, that you would give them a great wisdom and insight as to know what the best uh, things are to do and what is to be done, and that they would uh, make wise choices and decisions that you would give Scott wisdom to as he makes certain decisions here in coming days and weeks. And uh, God, we just thank you so much for them, and God, we ask for your blessing on them right now. Father God, it is a humbling experience to come before you in, in prayer for Scott and Liliana and and Michael, in fact, the whole McAndrew family as they're dealing with this uh, health issue and health crisis. Lord, we know from Psalm 139 that you knitted Liliana together in her mother's womb. Um, you knew her before she was even born. And you knew this would happen. And in, in your providential uh, reasoning and, and and we don't know the, the why but you allowed this uh, I, I think ultimately for uh, for your glory but you know that's hard to process when you're going through something like this and so father we're, we're coming to you also for help for care for healing for for love for compassion uh, you know and and you've you've instructed us and 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 you've told us that you're going to never leave us or forsake us. And that's all of us that, that believe and trust in you. And so I pray, Father, for a, a miracle here. I understand uh, that Liliana has one of the best uh, neurosurgeons uh, available. Uh, that's way beyond any of our pay grades here, but not beyond yours since you're the creator God. So please, Lord, have, have mercy on this family. Have mercy on Liliana and, and, and help Scott uh, persevere as an encourager, as her husband, uh, as a father, as, uh, in, in, in his vigil uh, to maintain. Uh, thank you, Lord, for hearing our prayers. And Lord, we, we just, we praise you. We just exalt you as our creator, God. Thank you, in Jesus' name. Father, I too am so thankful for this gift of prayer. 
Lord, truly we can draw near to the throne of grace to receive mercy and find grace to help in a time of need, a well-timed help. And God, we thank you that in difficult circumstances, Lord, that you are closer than we realize, much closer. God, we know, as has been said, you're at work in this for your glory, uh, even though right now, Lord, that may be hard to see. We know that's the truth. And Lord, we just lift Scott and Liliana uh, to you, and Lord, we pray that in this time their faith would be strengthened, um, that it would be purified and refined, um, and as it says, that it would, they would come forth as gold uh, through this time. Lord, we pray you'd give them an abundance of wisdom to care for Michael and to shepherd his young heart uh, through this time. Lord, help him to see and his mom and dad uh, to lovers of God who trust in you, who lean on you, who even though they might not have every answer, they, they do not doubt you, they, they lean into you. Um, and Lord, we pray that you'll use this in Michael's heart and life, Lord, to, uh, to further draw him to Christ. And Lord, we just pray that uh, Scott and Liliana especially, but also the family who love them and are struggling uh, with them and friends as well, God, that you would grant an enduring faith. Um, Lord, a faith that has more confidence in you and your goodness and your sovereignty than before this all started. And Lord, I too as well pray for a favorable outcome for Liliana. Lord, that she'd be able to, at the end of this, to be fully restored to her husband and her son and her family. Um, that whatever this thing is in her, her head would be able to be treated and removed with no lasting consequences. God, that's our desire and we just lay these before you. God, we know you're good and we trust you so that no matter what, God, um, Lord, we want you to be glorified. And so again, we just commit uh, the whole McAndrew family to you, uh, the doctors who are caring for Liliana, um, Lord, and we pray that the hope of the gospel would be clear in everyone's lives to those around them as they watch these dear brothers and sisters suffer. So God, we, we pray that you'd be honored and glorified in all that's said and done there. Lord, we also now pray for our time to study your word and consider some very weighty and vital cultural issues that we face as a church that are pressing upon us with an intensity and a heaviness. Lord, give us clarity uh, in light of what your word teaches. Help us be able to think clearly um, and soberly and not be carried along with the spirit of our age. Help us to be sober-minded and, um, Lord, to, to think as we need to as those who belong to Jesus. Uh, so, Lord, equip us to better know you and walk with you and make you known to those around us through our time today. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we are going to jump in now. Uh, this is going to be a major sort of shift just in, in terms of uh, what we're discussing as we talk about the, the transgender movement. We started talking about that last Sunday. And uh, again, there's just a lot of material here to, to, to walk through and to talk about. If you have a Bible, I want you to turn to Deuteronomy chapter 22. Deuteronomy chapter 22. And as you're turning to Deuteronomy 22, 
one of the issues that's often discussed when you talk about Old Testament law given to Israel is, is this particular law that we're talking about, is this something that is part of God's eternal moral law that is binding for Christians in the New Covenant and for uh, God's covenant people in the Old Testament, or is it part of the ceremonial law that uh, no longer is binding on Christians today because it has been fulfilled and taken away in Christ? For instance, wearing mixed fiber clothing. That was a command in the Old Testament. You're not supposed to wear uh, clothing of different fibers. That is no longer something we're bound by in the New Covenant era. Same with certain kinds of foods that we were not allowed to eat. Now we are allowed to eat, etc. So uh, let's start with Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, and uh, I'll read this for us. Deuteronomy 22, verse 5. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Uh, that's short. Let me read it again. A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak. For whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord your God. Now, when, when someone hears that, we can all tell what that's saying. It's very obvious. But someone might say, well, yes, but that was the old covenant law. Maybe that was ceremonial law. Maybe we're no longer bound by that. Maybe it's okay today for someone to uh, wear the, the clothing of the opposite sex. And I, I, probably common sense would tell you that's not correct. But I'll go ahead and turn now to the New Testament, to 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And I, I think before COVID, so maybe three years ago or more, we, we have an hour-long podcast where we walk verse by verse through these, ver through these 16 or 15 verses. And if you want to hear a much more detailed uh, walkthrough of this text, going uh, literally phrase by phrase, you can go back on our podcast. I think it was something called like Head Coverings, Headship in Christ or something like that, if you go back on our podcast to 1 Corinthians 11. But we won't do an hour-long walkthrough of this text today. It is, it is definitely a challenging text to interpret because, um, well, you'll see why as we read part of it. But I do think the principle of Deuteronomy 22.5 is picked up and reaffirmed in this text, that a man should dress as a man and a woman should dress as a woman, which is taught in Deuteronomy 22.5. It's actually an abomination for a man to dress as a woman or a woman to dress as a man. I think that same basic principle is picked up here in the New Testament and repeated for the church. Although there are definitely disputed aspects of this text, I think that this main point here is clear. So let's just read together. If you haven't heard this text before, or if you haven't heard it in a while, it's always a bit of a surprise maybe when you first read this. But let's start in uh, verse number 2. Greg, would you mind reading uh, 2 through 16? Yeah, be happy to. Now I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions even as I delivered them to you. But I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Every man who prays or prophesies with his head covered dishonors his head, but every wife who prays or prophesies with her head covered, uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the, shame, the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head." For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. For man was not made from woman, but woman for man. Neither was man created for woman, but woman for man. That is why a wife ought to have a symbol of authority on her head, because of the angels. Nevertheless, in the Lord, woman is not independent of man, nor man of woman. For as woman was made for man, so man is now born of woman. All things are from God. Judge for yourselves, is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him, 
But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. If anyone is inclined to be contentious, we have no such practice, nor do the churches of God. Now, you're just reading a text like that out loud in public. You just think, what, all, what is everyone thinking when they hear it? What, what, what is this saying? Well, uh, again, we won't go through all the, the, the details of the discussion here. I'll just give you what, what kind of maybe our conclusion is, and if you want more information, you can go find it on the podcast. But the conclusion is, uh, and this is, this is the view of the majority of Christians, although I will say R.C. Sproul takes a different view, and he if he's right, uh, then, then a lot of us are doing this incorrectly, but uh, R.C. Sproul thinks that the head coverings are to be taken as something that should still be binding on women in worship services today. And so he believes that uh, women should have head coverings in church services that men should not, and that uh, especially if a woman prays in a church service, that she should have her head covered in some sense. Uh, now listen, I'm not going to make fun of that view. If that is what Scripture is teaching, then we must, uh, we must follow what Scripture says. I, though, don't think that is what Scripture is teaching here. I think what Paul is saying is that in his culture, in first century Corinth, there were customs, just like there are today. There are cultural customs, ways that men and women behave in public that signal certain things. Like wearing a wedding ring in public signals something. It's not a command in the Bible, but it signals something in public. Well, similarly, in first century Corinth, I think the best interpretation of this text is to say that in that society, uh, head coverings had a symbolic value for the people around them at that time. A, a, a symbolic meaning that it doesn't have today for almost anybody that I know. So back in that society, if a woman was, say, in, in a church service and she did not have a head covering and she were to pray uh, in the gathered group, which is what is mentioned here, if she were to pray with her husband present without a head covering, in that culture, it would signal that she was not being submissive to her husband's leadership, but that she was really taking over his position in the marriage. She was, she was not uh, showing a submissiveness to her husband by wearing the head covering. And if a man wore a head covering, he would be signaling that he was in submission, that, that he was not actually acting as a man should act, but he was acting more in the woman's role at that moment moment. And so Paul says, listen, if you don't do this the right way, you're going to send all the wrong signals in that culture at that time. Now, I think that the cultural expression of head coverings changes. I don't think we're under that anymore. But I think the principle under the command is unchanging. In other words, uh, uh, say, for instance, a married woman in church should, uh, should act in a way that shows a glad submissiveness to her husband. She should not act in a way that would undermine the authority of her husband in the home, and he should also act in a way that shows a joyful, humble, Christ-like servant leadership uh, in his family and in his marriage, and he should show that by the way he carries himself, how he speaks, what he does in the church service. So whatever all we make of all those debatable aspects of the text, the, the main thing I want to zero in on is this part right here. So look again at verse 6. I want to reread part of this. Well, let me start in verse 5. Every wife who prays or prophesies with her head uncovered dishonors her head, since it is the same as if her head were shaven. For if a wife will not cover her head, then she should cut her hair short. But since it is disgraceful for a wife to cut off her hair or shave her head, let her cover her head. For a man ought not to cover his head, since he is the image and glory of God, but woman is the glory of man. Then he speaks a little longer. Look down at verse 13. Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach you that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it is her glory, for her hair is given to her for a covering. Now, again, I don't think this is an absolute prohibition of any man ever having long hair because Samson had long hair and it was a sin for him to cut his hair short. So I don't think it's an absolute moral uh, obligation that no man ever have long hair. Uh, Samson obviously is an evidence of that. I think what's going on in this text is simply this. I think it's saying... A man should not have a feminine hairdo. 
and a woman should not have a masculine hairdo. In other words, th- what this means is a man, when he appears in public, should not make himself look like a woman by having the kind of a hairstyle that a woman would have, right? So, so a man should not make his hair look like a woman's hairstyle intentionally, and a woman should not intentionally try to make her hairstyle look like a man. In other words, when in public, men should gladly look like men, and women should gladly look like women. What that's going to look like in each culture is going to vary in some sense. Depending on what time in history and where you're located, there are different cultural signals for masculinity and femininity, and we understand that. But, but the idea of a, of a man intentionally dressing and appearing so as to confuse his gender, so as to make himself look androgynous or intentionally female in his appearance to where you're not actually sure. If he's doing that intentionally, I would consider that a sin, a disobedience of this text. Uh, does not nature itself teach you that a man should not have a woman's haircut is what I think Paul is saying. And similarly, if a woman dresses and does her hair and puts on clothes in a way to intentionally confuse her gender or sex to make herself look more androgynous or more like a man, she is also in disobedience to this text. Now, this text probably wasn't overly relevant in certain parts of history, but right now it is extremely relevant uh, when you think about both what Deuteronomy and what 1 Corinthians are saying, which is men should be glad to look like men, women should be glad to look like women. Some thoughts on this text, guys. You mentioned androgynous, and, and that's, a, uh, that's probably a, a, a more common term today um, because there is a lot of androgynous dress. Uh, not necessarily male, not necessarily female, but, and I don't mean cross-dressing. I mean just androgynous. I mean just uh, sexually neutral, I guess. Um, I, and I know you mentioned culture. Um, some, I've, I've been in the mission field where, you know, women were given head coverings to wear in, in, right. in certain cultures. Yeah, so, be, being aware of cultural sensibilities right, right. and whatnot. And, and you've got to do that. But uh, again, so my question is, what about androgynous dress uh, that's probably neutral? Uh, you know, you, you even get catalogs today and it's more, you can't tell whether that's a male male attire or female attire in the same catalog. Yeah, and I don't want to become the police here where like back maybe 50 or 60 years ago in, in, in the Christians in the South, it became a ridiculous, real legalistic system about exactly what men should wear, exactly what women should wear, ex- like all these very specific elaborate rules of dress. That is not what we're trying to do here, not at all. This is much simpler than that. All we're saying is if you are a woman, do you want, are you intentionally dressing and appearing in public in such a way as to confuse what gender you are? If you're a man, are you intentionally trying to confuse that you're a man by the way that you carry yourself and appear and look in public? That's the main, that's the main issue. I'm not, we're not here to give you 450 rules about how to dress and what women and men can wear or not wear. Uh, I, I think it's really simple, and a lot of it is a hard issue of... I mean, if we're being honest today, there are people out there that we see all the time. If you go into the store, you, know, you, you see people where you can just tell that the way that they are appearing, it, they're, it, they're trying to, I think, make it confusing as to exactly which gender they actually are. And so I think that's the very thing that Paul is, is responding to. Yeah, going back to Deuteronomy, you don't have to turn there, um, but it says at the end that a man, men and women who confuse with their signals and purposely dress like the opposite sex, it says that's an abomination to the Lord. Um, and I don't think we need to pass too quickly over that word. Um, not for like shock effect or to try to like, you know, be overly harsh. But if something's an abomination to the Lord, that means it's something that's that's revolting. It's it's the word abomination. It's a disgusting thing. When you see it, it provokes disgust. It provokes revulsion. It it in a sense makes us sick because we're like that is so wrong. That is so evil. That is so disgusting. 
Um, because, again, as Paul, you know, combining that with what Paul says, it's against nature. Things that are unnatural, that go against God's created design, um, and are particularly intentionally flaunting their rejection of His design, I mean, that, that should... That should create some kind of response in us that we shouldn't just be, you know, ho hum, meh, you know, like so many people are today. You know, you do you. It's that's not okay for this. It's really not okay. Um, and I, you know, we have to remember, folks. A lot of folks who do this, they are horribly deceived. They've been lied to. They've been discipled in error and in falsehood. And so, as, as I think as we said last week, we need to have a lot of compassion on the people who are being influenced by this way of thinking and thinking that these things are okay, but we need to have our strongest language, our, our clearest denunciations and condemnations for those who are promoting this, who are purposefully trying to tell us and the people around us that it's okay however you dress. If people can't tell if you're a girl or a guy, you know, that really doesn't make a big deal. Because in their mind, gender, sex, whatever, it's not a big deal. But it is a big deal if, you know, to, to put it more in the language where I'm from, like if you're a dude, I should be able to see you and say that's a dude. And if you're not a dude, I should be able to tell that, and you should too. Um, it shouldn't be confusing. Yes, and, and again, there are um, lots of things that people have, I think, gone to extremes in this area in both directions and different points in history. But we, we want to be clear on that particular point. And um, this, this is going to be a little painful, okay? Uh, some of the clips that I've been able to get and that we've looked at, uh, some of these are, are frankly painful to watch. Uh, you saw some last week if you were here. This we're going to watch about three and a half minutes of this compilation of different supposedly ministers or pastors at various so-called churches in, in different parts of the world. And, uh, and th this is dealing again with the issue of transgenderism and... Uh, <clears throat> the transgender day, of uh, transgender day of Visibility Celebrations. Ignore the, the background music that is somewhat set to this by the person who edited it, uh, but uh, these, these are real. These are, not, uh, these are not satirical. The Transgender Day of Visibility is extremely important for that community, and we need to celebrate it as well, because it is a victory. You do not need to change anything about yourself to be welcome here. Your skin, your hair, your belly, your limbs, your face, all beautiful, just the way you are. Each and every one of us is worthy of celebration. Each and every one of us is a masterpiece, worthy of his love because of what Christ has done. Okay, now, now hang on here. J just interesting, the, the statement that we are his masterpiece, I just got to mention this because I've heard Joel Osteen and a lot of people use this translation of this verse. That's coming from, a, that's coming from the Bible, but it's an interesting translation. It's, it's Ephesians 2.10. Now, we, we know you're saved by grace through faith. It's not of your own doing. It's a gift of God, not by works. And then it says, for we are His workmanship. That's the word that they're translating, masterpiece. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works that God prepared before and that we should walk in them. I've heard all kinds of people misuse this verse. And what often happens is, is that the, I think we get the word poem from the word, the Greek word uh, poeme or something, and the word for workmanship. It's the, it's the work of an artist. It's, it's a craftsmanship. It's God has done this amazing work in our life of salvation. And it is a, a marvelous work that God has done through Christ. But what often happens is, is that verse gets taken, and the verses just before that I, I probably will mention in the sermon, but the verses just before get cut out, which is, we were dead in trespasses and sins, we were following Satan, we were like the rest of mankind, children of wrath. That part gets edited out, and all it is is, you know, you are God's masterpiece. And the problem is, if you leave out the sin part, 
You distort the entire message altogether. What you often hear is the verses are quoted that only sound positive, but the ones about sin and judgment are left out. Moppies, Maddies, and Babas. Men who have given birth. Women whose children still call you daddy. Queer parents of all genders and none. There isn't a holiday set apart for us, but I see you. I see you next to your wife's hospital bed, snuggling your newborn skin to skin against your top surgery scarred chest while the nurses try to avert their eyes and not ask questions. I see you chest feeding your baby while glaring at people wishing you happy Mother's Day. I see you who have lost custody because a court agreed that it was less confusing for you to disappear from their lives than for them to see you as who you really are. And I see you trying to survive, not fully transitioning so you can see your children. I see you radicalizing your PTA. Take it. Taking down the donuts with dad's day. Confusing strangers by calling your infant they until they're old enough to declare their gender. Visibility is everything. Visibility is tightly wound up with society, culture, and power. Those in privilege and with power have a vested interest in keeping certain things invisible to maintain the current power structure. There was a time when you thought gay rights was just gay folks being able to get married, right? Me too. But it's the umbrella term for gender and sexual minorities, rights to housing, healthcare, safety, access to dignity. Trans people are often invisibilized, even in death, through lack of media coverage. And if there even is media coverage, through the misgendering and misnaming of a trans individual. Now, now this part in particular is going to be hard to watch, and I, I hope this doesn't stick too deeply into your memory. But uh, this is a new version of an old hymn. God of many genders, our world reflects you. Sunrise and sunset, uniting our hues. Woven into a city with jewels of all shades. I'm going to stop there. Greg, you, you maybe had a comment about how this song is being reworked. Yeah. Um, if we hadn't just been doing a lot of end time stuff, I might not have seen this. But mm. uh, open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 17, if you will. Um, Revelation chapter 17 is John's vision of the great prostitute and the beast, uh, the prostitute being Babylon the Great, uh, pictured here as a harlot on a beast. Um, you know, the, the picture of the city of man in opposition to the city of God. I want, I want you to listen to this and then keep in mind that what we're seeing and what we're hearing is human rebellion against God. Um, taking God's name and literally uh, blaspheming, speaking horrible things about God, um, taking His name in vain, which means to use God's name in a way that is dishonoring to Him. So listen to this. It says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment 
of the great prostitute who was seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. And he carried me away in the spirit into a wilderness, and I saw a woman sitting on a scarlet beast that was full of blasphemous names, and it had seven heads and ten horns. The woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and jewels and pearls, holding in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the impurities of her sexual immorality. And on her forehead was written a name of mystery, Babylon the Great, the mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Um, you know, and that's a picture of, of the anti-church, of the anti-God society uh, throughout history, culminating, I think, in the end, as we've talked about. I'm not going to rehash all of that. But you think about it, the sexual immorality, the blasphemous names, the golden cup full of abominations and impurities of her sexual immoralities, even her attire in gold and jewels, are all pointing to how this prostitute, um, how we can see her in some ways in what we're hearing sung in this song and what they're celebrating and what they are um, proclaiming. The hymn speaks of their, all their genders and their hues being woven into what? A city with jewels of all shades. What is this woman? One of the things clothing her, this, is, this woman is a city clothed in jewels, marking her rebellion against God. Um, and so that, I, I was telling him, I was like, the city of man is clarifying itself more and more into opposition to the city of God. And also, um, the, the, you know, John in 1 John talks about, you know, you've heard that Antichrist is coming. Even now, many Antichrists have come. It talks about the spirit of Antichrist is at work in the world. Um, you know, in, in, in one big sense, you know, Antichrist means against Christ. But how does he manifest that? He manifests it by trying to take the place of Christ, by trying to replace God, supplant God. And one of the things we read in 2 Thessalonians is that that final figure, whoever he is, whenever he comes, you know, he's going to be doing something very peculiar. He's going to sit, it says, in the temple of God, make himself to be God. He's going to, you know, do away with all other gods and put basically put himself in place of that. We see his spirit at work in this, because what is what are these? What is this whole agenda doing? It's claiming it's remaking God in their image and then saying God is endorsing all kinds of things that God actually hates. And they're doing it in the temple, in the church. Like, they're not doing this outside the church. They're in church buildings. They're not true churches, but they're claiming the name of Christ. They're sitting in church buildings, calling themselves Christians, and they're saying, this is what the Lord says. This is what the Lord blesses. And we need to remember that, in fact, they are expressing just outright, utter rejection of God and His Word and the ultimate idolatry of enthronement of humanity in the place of God being, even as Adam and Eve did, being able to say what's good and what's evil. So, yeah. Yeah, and, and just to see the, the fallout, I showed a video last week, and I mentioned this video last week, but I didn't have it uh, prepared to show. Uh, this video here, and th this is really what you see as the victim of this whole movement, and this is one particular person. Now, this is a biological girl, and she's been on testosterone for five years. And she, she's here talking about the fact that she would like to reverse this, but she cannot reverse what's really been done to her. So listen to her speak uh, for a moment here about what she's been through. 
Hey y'all, um, so I got out of my haircut because um, my hair was driving me nuts. And I shaved it because I'm tired of watching my hair thin out and it's less distressing if I shave it. So when I talk about being too far gone, not, I don't really know what else to call it. Um, this is what I mean. This is how deep my voice is. Um, <clears throat> it's gotten deeper over time and it's settled. Um, this is what I mean by hair loss. Um, and it just keeps getting worse, it keeps thinning, it keeps receding backwards. Um, you know, and I'm not exactly sure that's coming back. Um, those are the main things when I talk about being androgenized um, to a point of no return. Um, I really don't see those being fixable. So that's when I talk about, you know, just kind of staying how I am. I'm gonna skip ahead to the end. Talk about, like, give more awareness to the situation, um, kind of, so you can see where I'm at. Words are not working well with me right now. I'm just gonna cut this off. There you go. You know, this this is what happens when you give a woman testosterone this for five years. This is what happens, essentially. So, you know, that's it. Stay safe. So th there are all kinds of, of really uh, depressing videos, honestly, like that on the internet. You can look them up. You can find them. You've probably seen them yourself. But what, what looks so shiny and attractive on the front end to our world right now, the, the, the detrimental effects are already seen, just, just in terms of a worldly sense, the detrimental effects, much less spiritually, what this is doing to a whole generation. And as I, I you know, I, my, I teach Generation Z students, and I put on the board the, the statistic I showed you all last week about how Gen Z has gone from 10.5% LGBT in 2017, which is like yesterday. And then uh, four years later, they were at 20 point, I think, 8% LGBT. So in a matter of four years, that generation has doubled to 20%, one in five, uh, now claiming to be part of the LGBT movement. So th this movement is making massive uh, movement forward in, in both so-called churches, also in the public school system, and uh, this generation is just going to reap the consequences, and that's why we want to have a gospel that is big enough on the other side of these kinds of scenarios, where when people come out of this and have been horribly damaged by this emotionally, physically, spiritually, they have a gospel that can actually bring restoration and forgiveness and a complete turnaround in their life. And I, I really do think, I pray that there will be thousands and thousands of women at the well experiences for these kinds of individuals who come out of this and feel like they were deceived and that they were led astray by a lot of false kind of woke uh, pride, uh, a false really religious system, a, a ideology, and that now they've been damaged by it and they want hope and they don't know where to turn and that they would turn to Christ in, in those moments. Some reflections on that? Well, we need to treat this like we would treat any other sin uh, in the church. Um, that we encounter even among even among our members and we have to show compassion and forgiveness again preach the gospel and 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 truth and 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 again um be willing to uh give counseling guidance and and hope for someone like this individual just like we would any like i said any other situation in the church uh, it really doesn't matter the only only problem is this is really um, uh, not just transgender. The whole sexual revolution is a distortion of how God made us in the first place. It's a distortion of creation. It's a distortion of the male and female is, is, is two genders uh, created for one another, created to be married, created to have a family. And, and, and I did a little bit of... <laughs> Believe it or not, Siri answered me magnificently with a, 
uh, a nine-page document here called The Evolution of Divorce, and I'm not going to spend a lot of time, but it's, I've read the whole thing already today, <laughs> and it's the most, it's the most penetrating uh, thing that I've read other than um, um, abortion, which actually began a lot earlier in the 20th century. Uh, Ronald Reagan, our former governor of California in 1969, made, he said, one of the biggest political mistakes of his career. He created no-fault divorce mm, in California. California. And it was because he wanted, uh, it was getting divorced and, and, and he had to, you had to get, give a reason, so he claimed, she claimed mental cruelty. So he didn't think it was fair that, you know, that you'd have to claim some reason. But that was a reason for uh, preserving marriage, in fact, that you had to give a reason, whether it's adultery or whatever, and it was a, it was a bond somewhat. But anyway, he passed it, and within, that was in 69, within 10 years, every other state had passed a, a similar mm -hmm. no-fault divorce. And that was the beginning of the dissolution of the, the illusion that dissolution of marriage. Uh, uh, it, it went from 20% in 1950 to 50% in, 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 in uh, just a, a short period of time. And now marriage is somewhat on the rebound now, but it was that, that breakup, the, the, the divorce that, that opened the Pandora's box for all these other sexual movements. So it's, it's really in, in, in the impact on children, the impact on, I mean, God created us as a family unit to be fruitful and multiply and to have dominion over and to reign and rule in his kingdom. And, and we, with divorce, that fractured that relationship. And, and we're still feeling the impacts in our country. And it's opened the door for all these other sexual movements. So... I think we'd want to say or stress the importance of taking a stand on God's design because sometimes, oh, we don't want to cause a fuss. We don't want to be seen as contentious. We don't want to, you know, we, 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 we are afraid of any kind of, the church today is at least, it seems very afraid of any kind of negative image from the world uh, for actually standing on biblical truth. But, I mean, you think about it. And, and you know, when you, when you shared that and we were talking about it, like I started thinking, I was like, Every time the church, every time a society gives a little bit of ground on issues like this, you can almost guarantee that it's going to go a whole lot further than the ground that it just gave up. It's just, it's going to. Um, and as Christians, we have to keep in mind, yes, there is common grace, uh, but societies don't tend to go upward in righteousness. They tend to go downward into sin societies don't have the Spirit of God. And so even if they say, oh, it won't go any further than this, I can't trust that that's going to happen. They don't have the Holy Spirit. People in general don't have the Holy Spirit to guide them and constantly bring them back. Um, and so, you know, what started with no-fault divorce, like you said, it just opened Pandora's box. And I think that's a great illustration um, of what's happened in our, our culture and society in just a matter of decades. Um, the upheaval, I mean, you, you look at different, um, you know, ethnicities and all kinds of the way that this sexual revolution has impacted the, the health, the flourishing, the, the, just the general morality of our society. It has done nothing but take us on a nosedive. Uh, to, to quote from another book, um, and I don't even know who wrote this, uh, but it, it's a phrase that I think is, is very fit. 
because we've caved on this, our society caved on it, we are literally slouching towards Gomorrah if we're not already there, um, just in terms of where we're headed by, you know, oh, we don't want to make a fuss. We don't want to make a fuss. We don't want to make a fuss. Well, sometimes we got to stop and say no. Like, what God says is where we need to be. And if you don't like that, that's not my fault. Um, We can't apologize for the Bible. We can't apologize for what Scripture says. Again, we need to do our best to be as gracious as we can. But I think the church has for so long almost felt bad about upholding what Scripture teaches. And we should never feel bad about that because what Scripture teaches is actually what's best for society. And we shouldn't yeah. be sad about it. No, that's good. That's, that's why I do think the church has a unique, uh, it's always had this ability, but I think now more intensely is to show the world what men and women were supposed to be, uh, what, what men and women are supposed to be like. And when the church is able to do that, it's going to be contrarian to the society, but it's going to be a glorious difference. And I think people will be able to look at the church, not, not, not all will do this, but some, I think, will look at the church and see the attractiveness of how men, men and women were designed to function, what they were supposed to look like in their roles and their uniqueness and how God has made them. And when we act according to our design, just like a, you, know, you buy a machine, you treat it according to how it was designed, right? You, you, you deal with it as it was made to or it breaks down. Similarly with us, we, we were made to, to act in certain ways and to live in certain ways, most to glorify Christ, and then fleshing that out as men and women. As people see that in the church, hopefully they will be, uh, they'll be, it, it will be attractive to, to, to those the Spirit is working in, and they'll be one to Christ. I think one of the problems is that some of the churches have capitulated on some of this. I, as early as 1976, in response to this big um, uh, divorce rate, the United Methodist Church rather than come out, again, uh, come out in support of marriage, uh, came out in support of all these people who were getting divorces and encouraged, re- encouraged remarriage. Mm. And, and so this is in direct response to the message you recently preached on, on marriage and divorce and in and, and response to that. So the churches have not done a real good job. Now I'm generalizing, of course. But it is the church that's the foundation of God's Word, built on God's Word. And if we don't go back to Genesis 1 and 2 as, 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 as the rock, then, then we're going to continue to face this, uh, this sin into immorality that we've, we're witnessing. For, for the sake of time today, we're going to go ahead and close a little early today in prayer. So let's, let's bow our heads together and I'll pray for us. Heavenly Father, uh, we do ask that as dark as things are right now in our culture and appear to be getting darker, uh, God, we would ask that, that your people across this nation and, and, and across all the world would be able to be a light in the darkness and a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. And I pray that people would look into the church and see such a different way of living life, but a wonderful way, a God-glorifying way, a biblical way, that people would be strangely interested and intrigued by that and that they would be drawn in, and that they would want to know more, and that they would ask questions, and that they would begin to uh, experience uh, your truth in Scripture, and that you would give humble hearts, that they would be malleable before your Word and repentant over sin and desirous to honor you and to live for you in a way that is glorifying to you, and that you would bring many out of the darkness of this sexual revolution, many who've been wounded by it, who've propagated it, who've taught it, who've lived it, and have have reaped the, the consequences of it, that you would show them the wide open doors of mercy uh, and grace that are available only in Christ for restoration and for forgiveness and for a complete uh, change of life. And we do pray, God, that many, many tens of thousands of people across all the generations who, who, uh, who are struggling with these things would, would be able to 
uh, flee to Christ out of the storm and that they would be able to find safety and refuge, uh, which is only found in you. And we pray for the service coming up, Lord, that you'd be honored in it. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.